continue through the book of Galatians. We'll be in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. We will go through verse 20. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 through 20. Talk about the Apostle Paul and his worrying over the church. Maybe some of you here might be acquainted with worry. I have worry this morning. I'm worried about my children. I have one child with relatives in Louisiana. I have another child on the beach with a friend. And it's amazing when worry takes a hold of the things that you start thinking that can happen when you're not around. It begins when your children are born, you're worried, oh, what if my child doesn't sit up? What if they don't roll over? What if they're never going to learn to walk? And then they, they, they learn to do all these things, and you think, well, as they get bigger, it'll get better, but it doesn't. My, my son will be driving in a couple of years, and some of you already know that anxiety, turning loose your teenager with a vehicle or in a vehicle full of teenagers. And then they go to school, and they, you, you just worry. It's not just to your children. You worry about your parents as they get older. You worry, are they taking their medicine right? Are they being taken care of? Are they going to be okay when I'm not around? We have all these things that we worry about. And this morning, Paul is worried about the church. He loves them and he, he treats them as if they are his children. And I find this passage both sad and encouraging. It's sad because you can feel the anxiety that Paul feels for, over the church. It comes right off the page. He's upset that these heretics are coming in and confusing the church and that some of the people there are falling for this heresy which they've brought in that will separate them from the gospel, that will separate them from Christ, that will separate them from Paul himself. And he worries over this church like a parent worries over a child. But I also find it encouraging because I feel this anxiety and you will feel it as well, I'm sure, and you have felt it. And I guarantee you, if you seek to make disciples, whether it's of your children or someone else, you will feel this intense worry sometime as well. So what was Paul worried about and what was the remedy he hoped for? Well, let's look at Galatians 4, 8 through 20, see if we can figure it out. But in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You're observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. I beg you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I also became like you. You have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. You did not despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing? For I testified to you that if possible you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So then have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? They court you eagerly but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. But it is always good to be pursued in a good manner and not just when I am with you. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. Paul is worried 
about the church. We've talked about what's happened. That some people have crept in. These false teachers have crept in. And they've started telling people, you've got to obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. If you're a man, you have to be circumcised. You have to come under the covenant, the old covenant. You have to become like the Jews of the old covenant. You have to have the law and Jesus. And Paul has told them, no, don't go back to that. The law was never meant to save, only to convict. It cannot save you. No one will be justified by works of the law. But even though we know that, it is a temptation to begin to measure ourselves by how good we've been. And so the very first Paul that worry that Paul has, not only in this passage, but throughout the book of Galatians, he's worried that they're going to abandon Christ. That they're going to abandon Jesus. Now we might say it like this as he did in Galatians 1, that they are so quickly abandoning the gospel for a false gospel, for another gospel. It's not a gospel at all. And that's true. But to abandon the gospel is to abandon Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. He is the salvation for all people. If you abandon the gospel, you're abandoning Christ. What does that mean? Abandon Jesus. Return again to worthless elements. I want to draw our attention to one part particularly. He says here in verse 9, But now since you know God, or rather have become known by God. We talk a lot about us knowing God, that we know Jesus. Jesus lives in our heart. We talk about Christianity and our faith that way quite often, but Paul talks about it here. He says, rather being known by God. What does it mean to be known by God? Does he not know everybody? Does he not know everything? What does it mean to be known by God? Yes, he has always known us, but no, you have not always known. He has not always known you the way he does after salvation. He knows everything about you, but when he talks about this knowing, he's talking about the fact that as we read in the last chapter, that the Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence in our heart. That he knows us intimately, personally. We have become known by God. God, of course, knows every hair on every person's head. They're all numbered. He knows every day. He knows every second that we're going to be alive. He knows when we were born. He knows when we were going to die. He knows how we're going to die. But what Paul is talking about here is that when we were lost and dead and trespassed in sin and far away from God and did not love Him, that God comes and introduces Himself to us through the gospel, that the Holy Spirit Himself enlightens our eyes, convicts our hearts of our sinfulness, and that when we repent and cry out in faith to Christ, that the Holy Spirit knows us. He comes to live inside of us and be with us. And Paul says, since you have known God, or rather become known by God, why are you again leaving and going to the weak and worthless elements of the world? Observing days and seasons. He's talking about the things on the Jewish calendar, which are fine to observe. But if you're observing them to think that by these works you are going to please God, or this is how you please God, you forget that God has already taken up residence in you. You don't have to do any other works. He has already accepted us as we are. I wonder this morning... If you can remember what it is like to be lost and without God. You might not be able to. Maybe you were saved at a very young age. You've walked with Christ as all of your living memory, basically. 
Can you remember what it's like to be lost and without God? If you can't recall what it's like to be without God, we might become in danger of trying to live like we don't need God. We might begin to try to measure ourselves up by the law just as these people were tempting the church there to do. Oh, keep the law of God and God will be pleased with you. Keep the circumcisions, keep the Sabbath, keep the Feast of Booze, keep the Feast of Weeks, keep the Feast of Pentecost, keep all these Feasts of Trumpets, become Jewish. Don't, why don't you not cut the side of your beard like it talks about? Why don't we wear our prayer tassels again? Why don't we keep the law of Moses and then we will be a people that God loves? And that seems tempting maybe if you've forgotten what it's like not to be known by God. I remember well what it is like to be without God. And I'm glad that I can. I'm glad that I can remember what it was like to be without God. I want to describe it to you in case you are one of the blessed that the Lord has been with all of their days. I want to tell you what it's like to be without God. Before God came to me, I never knew love. Now, I don't mean to say that no one ever loved me, or that I didn't ever care for anyone, but I did not know what love was. Not really. I never knew love because I never knew the security of love as Christ loves us because love always seemed conditional. And when I looked at my condition down deep, I always felt like I was sort of a loser. That I would have to merit someone else's affections. Like whatever I did in life, my, my job or how I conducted myself, whether I was cool or uncool, whatever circles I ran in, I always had to impress other people. And when I stopped doing those things, then perhaps their affections would be taken from me. You might have felt this even with your parents. Even though your parents may have loved you unconditionally, you, perhaps you always sought their favor by the things that you did. Or maybe you had a difficult parent who you felt you could never please and... Even though they did love you, they could not express it toward you. Or maybe their love was conditional. This is what it's like to be lost and without God is never being sure where you stand with anyone or anything. Apart from Christ, we cannot know love. We cannot know the security of love because it's conditional. We call that being lost. I took a hunter safety course a long time ago. I'll never forget it. It is required to get a hunting license in the state of Louisiana. It is in Alabama too. But when people become lost in the wilderness, they panic. This, is, this is, happens all the time. People become lost in the wilderness and they panic and they begin to run. They run in just blindly through the woods because they're by themselves and they panic. And the person who was there also worked in search and rescue. And he says one of the things that people do when they're lost in the woods, they, they lose their mind. They'll start taking off their clothes. Now, now don't, here's why. Usually when you go hunting off in the woods, it's really cold, and you've got a bunch of clothing on because it's cold, and you're sitting there, and you get cold. If you don't believe me, you can ask Steve Hellams. It gets cold out there. Toes get cold. Everything gets cold. You're bundled up in this parka. Well, when people get lost, and they realize they don't know where they are, they panic, and they start running, and they get hot. They start to sweat, and they start shedding their clothes. Well, guess what happens when they stop running? They're covered in sweat, and they freeze to death. And he said, when we're doing search and rescue missions, when we, start look, when we start finding clothing, we stop looking for people and we start looking for our bodies. 
Now, why would I tell you that illustration? Because that's what it's like to be lost. It's a constant panic. You're by yourself. You don't know which way to go. You don't know a safe port for your heart. Everything feels conditional. Everyone's love in some way, even those who love you, even those who try to love you, even those in Christ still hurt you. Being without God is a lonely place. When we are lost, we live our entire lives trying to convince ourselves that we aren't unlovable. Down deep, that's the way we feel. We try to please others. We try to please God. Even religious folks who grow up in homes where the gospel's preached and they don't know Christ, they try to keep the law and be good people so that Christ will love them. But it's a lonely place and I never want to go back there. Martin Luther puts it like this, Whoever then seeks righteousness by the law, imagining that God is angry and threatening and that he must be pacified by works, he will never find so many good works as are able to quiet his conscience, but he will always desire more. You will never feel that you have the affection of the Father if you feel that you must please him by works. Here is what the Lord desires of us. Our love. I said earlier we don't even know what love is or how to love. And that's why he must first love us before we can love him. Because what the Bible teaches us and what the Spirit of God shows us is that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. I don't care what you've done, what you've said, what, how you live. It makes no difference. Christ embraces you without condition. You see in Christ unconditional love, and that's why we repent of our sin. Because we've seen nothing so good and holy and pure and wonderful. Why would we ever want to disappoint such a one who would die for us? We finally find the safe harbor for our soul. Why would you leave that for the elemental things of the world to try to fit in in your particular clique or place? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't love our friends. No, I think we should love them, but... We don't have to perform. He can stop performing. He loves you as you are. Brothers and sisters, Paul is worried about the church because he's afraid that they will abandon Christ, the gospel. That they will begin to boast, not in this love of Christ, but in the things which they've done. And those things are abhorrent to the Lord. Because our works... Our works will never please Him apart from faith. Never. God reveals His love to us. He reveals Himself to us. And it breaks Paul's heart to think of this church abandoning that love or trying to please Him by works. It, it breaks his heart for, them to think, for him to think that these children who truly are children of God, who once walked in joy and peace, now thinking perhaps the Father is angry with me. I thought he loved me, but I was not circumcised. I was not keeping the law of Moses. I have been trimming my beard. I've been doing this. I, I haven't done that. What Will God love me? And Paul says, do not abandon the free grace of God for elemental things of the law, which can never bring peace or salvation. Paul is worried they will abandon Christ. And here's another thing he's worried about. He's worried that they'll abandon him. He's worried that they will abandon him. Does it sound selfish to you for me to tell you that Paul is worried that 
those who once loved him will abandon him. I don't think it's selfish. And so what if it is? He's a human being. He loved these people and he poured out his life to them. He came to them when he was very sick and infirm and they took care of him. They listened to the gospel and they received it joyfully. And abandoning him would hurt him. He loved these people. But above all, their rejection of him means rejecting the gospel that he brought. Because what's happened is these false teachers are driving a wedge between them and Christ. And also to accomplish that, they're going to have to drive a wedge between the church and Paul. So if they abandon Paul, they abandon the gospel, they have to abandon Paul because the gospel is his life. Jesus is his life. In the Old Testament, the prophet Samuel was upset. He was a judge of Israel. He was the last judge of Israel. I don't know if you know that. He was the very last one. Israel began to demand a king. And he thought, what am I, chopped liver? I'm the judge of Israel. I've been doing this for years. Why do they suddenly want a king? And he's upset about it. The Lord comes to him and says, Samuel, what are you upset about? Just know this, son. It's not you they've rejected. It's me. Because they've rejected me, they're rejecting you. That's how Jesus warned his disciples, did he not? If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, what will they do to his teachers, to his followers? The follower is never above his master. If they've called me Beelzebub, that's what they're going to call you. If they've rejected me, they'll reject you. If you come in my name and they've rejected my name, they're going to reject you. And so Paul was worried that the church at Galatia was going to reject him. And I wonder, have you ever felt that for your faith, you might suffer rejection too? Remember how we're talking about earlier that most of our self-worth or self-esteem is based on pleasing others and getting them to like us. We work at this endlessly. It's, it's how we dress, how we clothe ourselves, how we talk, the, the things that we share on our social media. This is all trying to garner the affections of others. And so if we suddenly become Christians, we realize, hey, if I start sharing my faith and I live for Christ and I tell this person, this is how it is, I might break that relationship. That's what Paul is feeling. If you're a Christian for any amount of time, you're going to feel that as well. And I think that there's a lot of people today who profess Christ who don't know him at all. At least they don't have the, they don't have the sort of heart that Paul has. And I hope you'll listen to me because this may not go in the direction you think it's going. As I read today, especially in Twitter wars and Facebook comments, listen to people talk, it seems to me that Christians are ready to write off other Christians at the drop of the hat. They're ready to divide the camp and say, you're here, you're here. We disagree on this thing. No matter how small the point, no matter what the minutiae might be they're arguing about, they're ready to abandon one another over it. That was not Paul's attitude. Not at all. He didn't say, well, see you, Galatia, if you want to be that way. He mourned, he grieved, persuaded with tears. He said he was perplexed. He wished he could change his tone of voice. He doesn't know what to do. He wants them to have the joy in Christ that they would have. This is supposed to be our heart, not a nasty heart of division, but one that seeks unity. He genuinely loves these people. He loves the people of Galatia. We should be people who love others too and be patient. There is no one in here who has not at one time accidentally or on purpose been a heretic. 
every single one of us has erred, and we'll continue to do so as we grow in Christ. You believe some dumb stuff. <laughs> I have believed some dumb stuff. I've done some dumb things, sinful things even, sometimes out of ignorance, sometimes out of willful disobedience to God and His Word. And through all of those things, Jesus has never abandoned me. He's never left me or forsook me. He's convicted me, but never left me. And so our heart should be, we, we're going to feel this worry when we confront other people with the gospel when we begin to tell them what we believe, how we've changed, the things that we can't do, that we used to do, the things that we must do now that we used to not even think about. We're going to upset people. We know that. And we might worry that we will lose someone we love, but we should go into this not with hearts that are so ready to cut them off, but with always the hope that there will be unification and reconciliation. Paul is worried they will abandon Christ. He's worried that they will abandon him because the abandonment of Paul means abandoning so many other things. And finally, he's just worried that they will lose their joy. If they lose the Lord and they lose Paul, they will lose also the joy that comes with their salvation. Paul says they will lose their sense of blessing. He said, look, I came to Galatia and I was sick. We don't know what was wrong with him. He said, I was infirm. We think probably Paul had very poor eyesight. And apparently he might not be able to see. We don't know. There's a lot of speculations about what's going on. But for some reason, he says, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me if that would have worked. So it must have been something to do with he couldn't see. And, and no wonder Paul had been beaten to death almost, and he'd been stoned, and he'd been flogged, and he'd been left in the open sea. The guy had had a rough time. So it's no wonder that he was having some health issues at this point. He comes to Galatia, he's sick, and he begins to preach the gospel to them, and they take care of him, and they, they feel like, he says, you took care of me as if I was Jesus himself. You were glad to do it. And now what? Because I've told you the truth that Christ loves you unconditionally, that you don't need to listen to these people, I've become your enemy now? Who once was your friend who you loved as Christ himself? They will lose everything if they lose Christ. They will eventually lose their relationship to one another. You know why? Because relationships that are built on law die. They die. That's why we've got so much trouble in the world today, because we, we're checking off the boxes we check off these boxes. Okay, he's this, kind of Baptist. He does this, he does this. Oh, there's a box he doesn't check. We can no longer walk in agreement. If our relationships are based on performance, when you begin to perform, when you cease to perform, the love won't be there. So they will lose everything if they lose the gospel because only the gospel brings grace and healing. He says he's in agony, agony, like labor pains. He is in agonies because they're trying to steal their hearts away from Jesus, trying to steal away their joy. He says he's like suffering labor pains until Christ is formed in them. So I want to ask you a question as a challenge as we get to the end of this. Have you ever loved someone so much? Have you ever invested so much in them that you felt like you were in agony until Christ was formed in them? And that when you see them abandoning the way of Christ, or doing things that might not be Christ-like, that you felt agony in your soul over it. Like you were in labor pains until Christ was formed in them. Maybe over your children you worry, are they going to be in the faith? Are they going to stay in the faith? Are they going to walk with Christ? Are they not? Are you in agony over that? What do you 
What are you doing to teach them the faith? Do you pray? Do you write them letters? I'm perplexed with you. I want to change my tone of voice. How do I do this? Have you ever had a friend who professed Christ at one time and then begins to walk off from the faith? All those times of fellowship, perhaps you've stayed and you've prayed together. I've had friends who invited us into their home. We prayed together. We had Bible study together. We had the Lord's Supper together and then called me and said, I'm not a Christian anymore. Or I just don't know if I believe or I'm out here and your heart just breaks. Like, what is happening? Today, in the church, there's many divisions. There are many problems. Lots of them. A lot of hatefulness, nastiness. A lot of sin that needs to be confronted and addressed. A lot of bad things. I am not discouraged. I'm encouraged. This is how it is. When Paul left the Ephesian elders, he said, through many trials must we enter the kingdom of God. He told Timothy, his beloved son in the ministry, no one who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will escape persecution. No one. If we're not contending for the gospel, then we will have an easy time. But if you're contending for the pure heart of Christ and the free grace which he gives through the crucifixion of himself and his resurrection, you're going to have trouble. And you know, some of these folks that we're fussing against who are wrong, they're still believers. You can be very wicked and still be saved because we're not saved by works. And we have this hope, this unquenchable, undying hope that gives birth to our agony of labor pains that one day Christ will be formed in them. That we do not labor in vain. We believe that the Holy Spirit of God does dwell in the heart of the believer, that he will be grieving, that he will bring conviction, that he will be in repentance, that he will bring salvation. And if I'm wrong or they're wrong, the God of the universe must intervene and help us. Of course there's division. Of course there's fighting. we got sinners everywhere. And we're ignorant. What we must have is love and patience, kindness to talk. I'm thinking very especially in next week the Southern Baptist Convention is happening. We're going to get in there and there's going to be some fussing. There's going to be some agreement. But the Lord is guiding us. These things must take place. Because there are some false converts, false professors out there, probably some in leadership positions, and they need to get out. And there's other brothers and sisters who are just wrong, and they need to be convicted. And I could be one of those. And I trust that through the patient, patient uh, admonition and teaching of my brothers and sisters, that we'll be changed to be more like Christ for it. The Apostle Paul worried over the church. He was in agony for it. Are you in agony for the church? Are you concerned about what happens here? Do you understand that Christ is being formed in people? The Lord Jesus said that when a woman's in labor, now, I have not ever been in labor. 
I had a really bad toothache last week, and I thought, if having children is worse than this, I'm never having children. Amy assured me that wouldn't be a problem. That once a woman has the child, that the pains of labor are forgotten, for the joy is so great of a child being born into the world. And now in this present world, we labor. We labor that Christ might be born in others and that Christ might be born in us. But one day, Christ will be formed. One day, we will be like Jesus in the sweet by and by, right? And one day, we will be like Christ in every way perfected in our heavenly bodies, rejoicing before the throne. And I guarantee you, the agony we feel now will be forgotten in comparison with Christ being revealed in us. So hold fast and... One of the challenges that I want to leave with you today in this passage is this. I pray that your investment and your heart and your treasure is so much in the kingdom of God and in Christ's church that you do feel this agony until Christ is formed in every last member. And not only in every last member, but out in our community and out in the world that Christ must be formed in the hearts and souls of others. And if you know Christ yourself, remember, while your feet were in the sinking sand, he lifted you up and put you on the rock. That you were dead in trespass and sin, and he made you alive by his grace. That you are far away from the promises of God, and he has called you son. He has called you daughter. He has put the ring on your finger. He has put the robe on your back. He has brought you into his home. He has reached down and saved you. You are in his grip, and... He will never let you go. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the profound love that he has toward you. And not a single one of these things are based on our works. This morning, me and my very large Sunday school class, me and Eli, were in there talking about our favorite things about the life of Jesus talked about Jesus walking on the water. It's pretty awesome. I told him I really love that story too. My favorite part of the story is not that Peter walked on the water. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Or that Jesus did. It's when Peter was afraid and began to sink. He said, Lord, help. The Bible says, immediately, Christ reached out his hand and grabbed him. Jesus loves you. And he is always there for us, not based on our works. Not based on anything we've done. He loves us unconditionally. And if you feel like you are floundering this morning and drowning, all you have to say is, Lord, help. And he will rescue you. He told Peter, right after he pulled him out of the water, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt me? What does that mean? Do you hear that as a rebuke? Oh, well, because I'm dumb, I guess. No, he was like, why did you doubt me? What he means is, Peter, did you think I asked you to get out of the boat and I was just going to let you drown right here in front of me, son? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to let you drown. 
Why do you doubt my goodness? Don't doubt him this morning. Trust him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray this morning that you will be with us a people who need your grace every day. We pray that we will not abandon it for the elemental things of this world, that we will not judge ourselves based on how good we are, how much better we're doing than everybody else, or whatever other snare we might find ourselves in. But let us bask in this truth alone. The Christ of the universe, the King of kings and Lord of lords, has condescended not only to live for us, but to die for us. That he has risen from the dead and even now intercedes for us, his beloved children. As sinful and wayward as we are, he still loves us, invites us into his throne room to ask of him anything that we might want. Father, be with us this morning. Help us to be a people who live by grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.